because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 31, and we're going all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. So it's like four verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the chair in front of you. It looks like this. You can go to page 1017, and you will find on page 1017, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to chapter 11, verse 1. When I say 1031, 10 is the chapter number, and 31 is the verse number. So the chapter number is the big number, and... The small number is the verse number if this is your first time looking at a Bible. You can find your way that way. Here then, God's word from 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks Or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me, as I also imitate Christ. Father, we pray that you would open now this word that you have spoken in our hearts and minds in ways that would help us to imitate Christ in ways that would help us to glorify you, the greatness of all that you are for us in Christ. We pray that you would give us the power to glorify you, whether we eat or drink or listen to a sermon or preach a sermon. Lord, none of this is possible without your Holy Spirit's power. So we ask for divine, supernatural enabling. Incline our hearts to your word and not to material gain. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Unite our hearts with a singular focus to fear your name. And satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love in Christ. That we would rejoice and be glad all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Where is Jesus today? If you want to see Jesus, you want proof that Jesus exists, where is he today? Or... If he really rose from the dead, how can he show himself to me? That is, uh, those are the sentiments of a non-Christian. I mean, I'm kind of rewording it, but the sentiments of a non-Christian that John and I were able to gospelize last week. He was asking, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? How can we know that? How can I see that? If I could see it, I'd believe it. How can I see the glory of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can I see the glory of God in Jesus today if that happened, supposedly happened, 33 AD, almost 2,000 years ago? How can I see the glory of God? Well, that fits into what we're talking about today from this passage because Christians want to glorify God. We want to magnify Him. We want to display Him. We want to live a life where we're constantly praising His name. This desire to glorify and praise God, to show God to others in our lives... This is not a natural desire. This is a supernatural desire. It is a seed from heaven, from God, planted into your soul here in this old earth, this cursed earth, that begins to grow where you love Jesus and you speak of Jesus so that others can see and glorify Jesus. In other words, your desire to glorify God is a gift from God given to you. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, we're glad you're here this morning. We're thankful that you're here this morning. You need to understand, we all need to understand, that everyone lives to glorify something. That sounds like religious language, to glorify something. But we all live for what we value. We all live to to put what we love on display, to honor what we love. It's Father's Day. And so sometimes in efforts to honor our fathers, we, we love them, we appreciate them, and so we, we find words and ways to honor them because we honor what we love. You don't have to be a Christian to want to glorify something. You just have to be human. And so we, um, if, if, so we just want you to understand that you as a non-Christian, if you're not a Christian, you live for the glory of something. You honor something. You value something in your life more than other things in your life. And that value is what you glorify. That's what you enjoy most. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31 one more time. It's a familiar verse, but let me read it again. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for 
God's or for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. That sounds like the shorter catechism, which says, man's, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We sing about it. Last week we sang All to Us, where we sang, let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe, Lord Jesus, you're all to us. We also sang, I think it was last week, maybe even two weeks ago, to God be the glory. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus' the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. We want to give God glory. We want to do everything for the glory of God. Our problem is that we do not glorify God in everything. That's our problem. That deep down, you doubt whether you can really glorify God in everything. I mean, is it really possible whether I eat or drink or sleep or watch TV or talk to my friend or take a nap or listen to a sermon or enjoy Chick-fil-A, Christian chicken? Christian fried chicken or KFC, non-Christian fried chicken. Can I really glorify God either way? Is it possible to glorify God in absolutely everything? And so we learn to live with this low-level guilt of not glorifying God in everything. We just kind of throw our hands up and be like, you know what? Who can do that? So we kind of feel guilty because we know we should be glorifying God in everything, but it seems impossible. And so we just settle for not glorifying God in everything. And just try to do the best we can. And in that, there's this subtle hopelessness that it's impossible to be consistent. I just can't do it. So I'll do my best, but hey, the bar's kind of low when we look around, right? So um, I guess I'll be okay. And the question, the big question is, will God shine through us in our glorifying of him? I mean, that's a big earthly question. Will God's glory shine through Bethany Baptist Church? Will his glory shine through you as a member of this church? Will you reflect him? Or will doubt and giving up win the day in your life where you just settle for the rest of your life with saying, I can't do it? The main goal of this passage today and the main goal of this sermon is, that, uh, is um, or the, well, let me give you the main idea and then the main goal. Here's the main idea. Glorifying God in all things is more specific than you think. So here's the goal. Understand Paul so that you can glorify God in all. So if you, here it is again. Glorifying God in all things is more specific than you think it is as we read this passage. So understand Paul so that you can glorify God in all, in all the things that you do. To understand Paul so that we glorify God in everything, we're going to take four steps, okay? And these these are not just four separate points. We're going to build here on each point to get more and more specific on what does it mean to glorify God, okay? So four increasing steps of specificity to to know what it means to glorify God and understand Paul. Step one, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Everything for the glory of God. So point number one is, step number one is, do everything for God's glory, okay? That's from verse 31, Step number one, get in your mind, I need to do, you need to do everything for God's glory. What does it mean to do everything for God's glory? What does it mean to do something for God's glory? Or what does it mean to glorify God? It does not mean adding to God's glory. As if God has a certain quantity of glory, and when Bethany Baptist Church decides this week that we're going to glorify God and give Him glory, that we're actually adding to His glory. That's not what it means. So it's not like um, a bank account that God has and you can add some money to it, even if it's a small amount of money. It's not like God is just increasing this bank account. Another misunderstanding of glorifying God, it's not like when we talk about magnifying God, that's another way of thinking about glorifying God is magnifying who he is so that people see him more. John Piper has this illustration of we don't magnify God like a microscope. What do we do with a microscope? We take something that's really small, teeny-weeny, and you put it in a slide, and then you stare through the microscope, and does it look that small? 
No, it looks what? Bigger, right? So you take something small and you make it look bigger than it really is. That's not what we're doing with God. God's not this small, insignificant, um, you know, normal, common thing. And we're just like, oh, we make a real big deal out of a small little thing. That's blasphemy to think that God is little. No. Glorifying God, John Piper says, is more like a telescope. When you take a telescope and you look up at Jupiter or Saturn or at a star, when you look at it, when you look at it first without the telescope, how how big does it look? Really small, right? Sometimes you can't even see it. It looks really small. Now, when you look in a telescope, you're magnifying it, and now it looks bigger than it does with the naked eye. But um, what is it making Jupiter bigger? No, you're, see, you're getting a more accurate picture of what is actually there. God is glorious. God is infinitely glorious. He's big. He's beautiful. He's majestic. And we see a little sliver of that, if at all. And so what we mean by glorifying God is not adding to his bank account, as if we could add, or making something really small look bigger. God is big, and we want to display his bigness. We want to display his glory, his beauty, in how we live our lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. So to glorify God means to magnify the greatness that already exists. Or to go back to the bank account analogy, how do you glorify and show how much money God has? If God has an infinite amount of money, how do you glorify him? You don't glorify him by adding to the bank account. You glorify God by taking that blank check that he gave you and writing as many zeros after the nine that you can, right? And then you you cash it. What does that do? That magnifies that his riches are what? Immeasurable. That's how you magnify his riches. Not by giving him more money, but by showing how much money he has. To use that analogy. All right, so that's what we mean by glorifying God. So when we say do everything for God's glory, we're talking about magnifying the greatness that he already has. Another way of thinking about what it means to do everything for God's glory is do everything to find your satisfaction, your joy, your value, your identity, your pleasure, your happiness, your fulfillment, and even your life's direction. Do everything to find all of that in God himself. Not his gifts, but in God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way about the nature of praise. You might have heard this before. C.S. Lewis, um, in his reflection on the Psalms, he talks about his struggle with the Psalms because in the Psalms, um, God would often say, if God wrote the Bible and God wrote the Psalms, as we went through the Psalms just a few weeks ago, if God wrote it, it's saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. And C.S. Lewis would just want to cover his ears and be like, oh, I can't even read these things. It sounds like, and this is C.S. Lewis, Lewis's analogy, it sounds like a, 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 an elderly lady at the, you know, calling people to praise her for her beauty. And then he said, but then it hit me, basically. It hit me. And then Lewis says, quote, the world rings with praise. And then he, he starts talking about, you know, uh, people praise their favorite person. They praise rubber stamps, rare beetles. Um, the people praise their treasures. And he started looking around the world. And he's like, everyone, just Christian or non-Christian, everyone is praising something. They're like, look at that. Look how beautiful that is. Did you see that? Did you hear about this news? And he started realizing that the world rings with praise. And so he says this, quote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In other words, the reason we praise is because we have prized. When you prize something, you can't help but what? Praise it. It is not a duty. It is the natural outburst and completion of your joy. So when God tells us to do everything for his glory, he's saying, I am the greatest joy. You don't see it because it looks like a small dot in the sky, but I am your infinite, inexhaustible joy. And if you would just see me more accurately for who I am, you would realize that me calling you to praise, me calling you to praise me, God's saying, is the greatest thing I could ever call you to do because I am your greatest joy. Or the way John Piper says it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
All right, let me get practical here. How do we do everything for God's glory? Just under point one, let me give you three practical ways to do everything for God's glory. Pray, think, and obey. Pray, think, and obey. If you're going to do everything for God's glory, what do I mean by pray? Ask God in the middle of your activity. I'm going to give an illustration at the very end of me pulling weeds yesterday for work day. How do I do that for God's glory? So just in the middle of the mundane thing you're doing, you just pause and and talk to God. Father, can you please show me right now how I can glorify you with what I'm actually doing right now? Because if it's everything, then it's literally everything. I'm in a fight with my spouse. God, can you show me how to glorify you right now in this fight? Or it might be um, you're in traffic and you're really frustrated. God, how can I glorify you right now while I'm stuck here in traffic? Or it could be some news headline that comes across your news feed and you are frustrated and angered by it, maybe even righteously so. And then you can pray, God, how can I glorify you as I think about this news headline that I just read? So pray. Can you do it on your own strength? No, but interrupt your, interrupt your life to, to acknowledge and talk to God directly. A lot of times we don't glorify God because we ignore God. We don't even talk to him. We don't even ask him. Okay, so pray. But secondly, don't just pray. Think. Now, once you've prayed, think. Take your, take your thoughts of that moment captive. In other words, as much of, what the, of the Bible that you actually know, so all of your knowledge of theology and the Bible that you know, and you should be growing in it, but whatever you know up until that moment, take what you know and think biblically about that moment. Okay, God, here I am in the situation. What does your word say about being stuck in traffic? What, word, what verses apply to me and to the situation right now? What truths apply to me as, um, as I have just sinned against my wife and I need to ask her for forgiveness? Or maybe she's sinning against me and I need to confront her. What verses, Lord, apply to me right now? So, so you don't just pray and then just God zaps you with how to glorify him. You use your mind. You think biblically Amen. about what the situation says, okay? So unmask the lies of Satan and the worldly thinking and go to God's word for truth of how to think about that situation. So pray, think, and then thirdly, I said, obey. Obey right there, right now, right at that moment, even with a partial picture. That's important, even with a partial picture. Try to obey what, God, what you know of God's word every moment, Every time you pause to think, how do I glorify God in this moment? Obey what you know. So you prayed, you've thought about it, now obey what you actually know. Here's, and there are some verses that you can apply every single moment as soon as you pause. Glorify God in everything is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That applies all the time. So every time you pause, how do I glorify God while I'm fighting with my spouse? How do I glorify God while I'm pulling weeds? Lord, help me to love you right now with all that I am. Help me to love my neighbor as I love myself. Those, those verses apply almost all the, the neighbor one almost all the time. Loving God all the time. Or, here's one that's hard for us. In everything, give thanks. In what? Everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's 1 Thessalonians 5. I think it's verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. That, when does that apply? Always, right? So when you pause and you, you've prayed and you've thought, and then now it's time to act, thank God right now. Now, should you thank God even when you don't understand the full picture? Yes. So let me give you an illustration from one of the best movies of all time that I saw on Friday night, Rocky Three. I know Rocky, the original Rocky won, won the Oscar, but Rocky Three is still better. Rocky Three, Paulie, who's Rocky's drunkard brother-in-law, is complaining and attacking Rocky for not giving him a job in the beginning of the movie. He even tries to fight Rocky. Now, Rocky is the heavyweight champion of the world at this point, and his brother-in-law is drunk and trying to fight him, trying to fight the best boxer in the world at that time. But after failing to defeat Rocky, which you'd expect, Rocky's just defending himself, not fighting back. After failing and giving up, he asks Rocky for a job. And Rocky replies... All you had to do was ask. If all, all, like we, we didn't have to fight and you didn't have to complain and get angry. All you had to do was ask. In other words, um, if he would have just obeyed God in, in thankfulness, sobriety, 
and humility and said, you know what, why don't I have a job? Why hasn't Rocky hired me? I'm going to ask him for a job. Instead of complaining and, doing, and, and going through that humiliation, he could have got on, he could have asked Rocky for a job. He would have not ended up in that story. He ended up in jail for this. He would have not ended up in jail, and he would have been able to, now he's not Christian, but he would have been able to go on with his life glorifying God. Now, what did he not know? Polly didn't know that Rocky would give him a job, right? He didn't know that. So instead of asking Rocky for it, he just complains and gets drunk and depressed and even breaks the law because he's so mad that he doesn't get the job. But instead, if you would have just obeyed God, even though you don't know whether he'll give you the job, it's a partial picture. God hasn't guaranteed you'll get the job. But if you would obey what you know, oftentimes things work out. And even when they don't work out in the way you think, they work out in the way God wants it to, and you actually know and enjoy him more. So here's the point. The point is, you have to glorify and obey God when you don't have the whole picture. That's what I mean by obedience. Or another way of saying it is, um, brothers and sisters, you don't get to see the whole picture. Ever. At least as we walk by faith. Okay, get that in your mind. You have to obey, and you never get to see the full picture. God will never show you the full picture. He calls you to obey him with your partial understanding. Another way to say it is God will never give you the answer key. You just have to trust him and take the test. Another way to say it is there are no no shortcuts to faith. God will not short-circuit faith for your assurance of the moment. He will call you to believe in him when you don't understand the whole thing. That's what it means to be humble. And the reason you don't thank God when you ought to is because you demand to know more than God will show you. So we sing songs like, in my life, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, be glorified today. Church family, what does this mean for Bethany Baptist Church? It means we sing and apply what we sing. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. We want to glorify you in everything. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, well, I don't have any desire to glorify God, PJ. What, what about me? Well, here's one thing that God might be saying to you. He Here's a question for you to think about. What drives you? If you're not a Christian, what drives you? Or another way of asking it is, who inspires you? Who inspires you? Again, the main goal here is glorifying God in all things. Or the main idea here is glorifying God in all things is more specific than you think. I wasn't specific at all. I said glorify God in everything. But, so the first thing is glorify God in everything. But we need to be more specific than that. Let's go back to verse 31. Paul's more specific than that. Not just whatever you do, do everything, but whether you what? In verse 31, whether you what? Eat or drink. So here's point two. Point one, do everything for God's glory. Point two, eat and drink for God's glory. Eat and drink for God's glory. What do we mean by this? So Paul brings up this passage because of the question at hand. It's not how do you glorify God eating an In-N-Out burger, though you can. Or John Piper wrote an article, um, drinking orange juice to the glory of God. And that's good. You need to think about that. That's not what Paul's thinking about here. And that's not wrong at all. You actually have to think about how to glorify God with those things. But Paul is more specific than just eat an In-N-Out burger for the glory of God or drink orange juice to the glory of God. He's, he's aiming at something real specific. And what is that? We have to go back to the context. Look at verse, in verses 25 through 27. The question here is, is it okay to eat food offered to idols? So if you're worshiping a false god, or and in reality that's worshiping a demon, if you're worshiping a false god and you offer food to that god, and then you partake of the food, that's usually an act of worship and sacrifice. Even the priests in, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they would make a sacrifice, and then the priests would eat the food as an act of worship. So if there's food sold in the marketplace that was sacrificed and offered to a false god... And now you're a Christian, are you allowed to eat that meat? Yes or no? That's the question. That's the question. Can you eat that meat to the glory of God? And can you drink that drink offering to the glory of God? Or, can you, or must you abstain? Now look at verse 25. Matthew, or no, I'm sorry, Matthew, 1 Corinthians 10, 25. Eat everything, here's Paul's answer, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So what should you do? Should you eat it or not? Eat it. it. Feast. Why? Because it's all what? It's all God's. 
That's verse 26. But that's not the full answer. Verse 27. Verse 27 says, If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, and you should, share, love your neighbors, eat with them, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. So if you're with, the, if you're with um, non-Christians, should you, should you eat? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Now what if, but he says don't ask questions for the sake of conscience. Now what if you ask a question for the sake of conscience? Or what if you don't ask a question but you know that it was offered to idols and you feel, your conscience feels conflicted. You feel a little guilty. This might not be right. Then what should you do? Or what if your brother in Christ is with you and they're feeling conflicted? Or what if that unbeliever is thinking that it's wrong for you to do that? What should you do? Look at verse 28. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice... What's the command? Do not what? Do not eat it. Why? Out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience because it's not wrong, but the other person's conscience. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? In other words, I'm free to eat. It's not judged by their conscience. Verse 30, if I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized? Because of something for which I give thanks to God. I can eat it, but I won't eat it for the sake of who? My brother or sister, or even the non-believer who thinks it's wrong. It's not because it's wrong. It's not because of my conscience, because of their conscience. And so whether you eat or drink, whether you eat meat sacrificed to idols, or whether you drink drinks that were sacrificed or offered to idols or not, do everything for what? The glory of God. So what Paul means here when he's talking about eating and drinking to the glory of God, he's saying you eat and drink in a way that is sensitive to the consciences of others. So what's the answer? Should you eat or should you not? So there's the meat right there with you. What's the answer? Should you eat or not? Here's the answer. It's three parts. Seek the other's good always. Eat sometimes. Don't eat sometimes. That's a three-part answer. There's the meat in front of you. Should you eat or not? Answer number one, always seek the good of others. Answer number two, eat it sometimes. Part three, don't eat it sometimes. It depends. It depends on the strength of the other person's conscience. All right, so seek their good. Now, what is the conscience? The conscience is a tool. It's an alarm system in your soul that makes you feel guilty or justified. Now, your con- so your con- you, you know when you do something wrong and you feel guilty? That's your conscience acting. The Holy Spirit can be convicting you, but he's working through your conscience. And when you feel guilt, your conscience is being violated and the alarm system is going off. That's what's happening. Now, your alarm system can go off for wrong things. We have an alarm system here at this church, and it always goes off for the wrong things. I don't know if there's, I mean, at least my four, almost four years here, no one's broken in, but the alarm has gone off several times, and we have cops coming here all the time for the wrong things. Okay, so the the alarms are not always correct. Not just church alarms, even your alarm is not always correct. Sometimes it goes off for the wrong reason. Food offered to idols, don't eat it, don't eat it, it's wrong. And it's not really wrong, but your alarm is going off. So Paul is saying when that person's alarm, your brother's alarm is going off, don't eat it. Because you don't want to teach them to eat it and then they learn to eat while the alarm is going off because they learn to ignore the alarm. And then when it's an actual sin and then you've taught them to ignore their alarm, they're going to be sinning all over the place. And there's no protection anymore because the alarm system has now been ignored and compromised. So you never compromise another person's alarm system, their conscience. You need to seek their good always. Now, there is such a thing, like I said, a false guilt. Like, it's not guilty to eat food sacrificed to idols. In our culture today, um, so, some might say drinking alcohol is always sinful. Is that true? No. But what is true? Do not get drunk with wine. Drunkenness is always sinful. Breaking the law and drinking under 21 in our context is, is sinful because it's Romans 13, disobeying the law. But drinking in and of itself is not sinful. But some people, is it true that some people have a a sensitive conscience that's misinformed and so they feel guilty when they drink? Is that true? Yes. It's probably true even in our church. And so another one that's not true in our church but maybe outside in the culture, some people think they feel guilty if you say that homosexuality is a sin. 
that same-sex marriage isn't marriage, and it's sinful against God. Some people are like, oh, that sounds unloving. I feel guilty if I, if I say that or associate with that. Again, that could be a misinformed conscience. Now, when, someone has, when a weaker Christian, and Paul calls them weaker Christians, when weaker Christians have misinformed consciences, what do we do? Does that mean the weaker Christian can just kind of chain you up and, and, and dictate your life because they say, that violates my conscience, that violates my conscience, that violates my conscience, and so now you're controlled by less mature Christians because their conscience, their weaker conscience is used to lord it over you? Is that the way God wants the church to work? No, no clearly not. So then what do we do? Again, this doesn't give the weaker Christians license to enslave fellow Christians with their preferences. But what is a stronger Christian supposed to do? A stronger Christian is supposed to defer, serve, and sacrifice his right to serve the weaker brother or sister. Now, serving your brother or sister who's less mature does not mean catering to their preferences forever. It means catering to their preferences temporarily while you teach and train them what the Bible actually teaches. You get that? So are you bound by another Christian's conscience? Temporarily, you are. You need to pause, and you need to not run over them. You need to give them time to think. You need to give them time to pray. You need to open the Bible and show them what the Bible says about it. But then after a while, it could be stubbornly, they're just not listening to what the Bible says. At that point, it's no longer a teachability issue. It's an issue of they just don't want to believe what the Bible says. And at that point, you can proceed. Okay? But the goal is to love and do what's good for them. So D.A. Carson will say things about drinking. He'll say, that if I was with a weaker Christian and they were drinking, or drinking was a sin, I wouldn't drink. But if someone was saying, you, if you drink, you're not a Christian, then I would say, pour me a beer right now. He's like, because I want to show them that that is not what the Bible teaches. Like, if they're just stubbornly disobeying the Bible and, and using false teaching and false standards to distort the gospel, I will drink to destroy that false thinking. But I will pause and I will hesitate if, if a brother or sister is working through it and, I'm, and they're, you know, we're trying to work through these issues. You see the difference here? It's a fine line. It takes wisdom. It takes, this is a mature Christian. These are mature Christians that need to, to do these things. It takes maturity to do it, to defer. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here, though, if you're going to eat and drink to God's glory. So eating and drinking is doing what's good for the other person's conscience. So do everything for God's glory, even eating and drinking. What does this mean for us as a church family? Let us share life with each other and get to know each other's weaknesses that we might care for each other. If you're going to care for each other and be sensitive to each other's consciences, guess what that means? We have to get to know each other. If you don't know your fellow church members, you don't know when you're stepping on their toes because you don't know them. And that also means if you feel guilty as a Christian or you feel like someone else is doing something wrong, what do we need? what's our job as Christians? What do we need to do? We need to what? We need to communicate it. We don't just keep it in and then start whispering to someone else, hey, Carrie, do you know that what Lance did was, you know, and I start, how dare he? Like, that's not, that's not how you grow a church in a community of grace. I would go to Lance and say, hey, brother, I don't know if that was right or wrong, and he might instruct me because I'm misinformed, or I might be correct, and he might be instructed. Either way, it's not going to somebody else and, and gossiping and slandering. That's not the Christian way. That is the satanic way. It is to go and communicate with each other so that we can work these things out. Because brothers and sisters, just look around this room at the members of this church. We don't all agree on everything. There is a lot of things to work through in this church, and there will always be. And so let us continue to share life and disciple each other according to the word. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. Did you know that everything in your life has meaning and purpose, even eating and drinking? This is good news, that everything in your life has purpose and meaning. You don't have to live a boring life because God has a purpose behind everything you do. And if you don't realize that, you're missing out on an important privilege and gift that could be yours. It's like having a winning lottery ticket in your pocket and, not, and then you actually won the lottery and you didn't even know you won. And you just end up throwing it away. It's like, yeah, it expires, you have an opportunity, you actually ha- you're sitting on a treasure, and you don't cash it in. Every time you eat and drink or whatever you do, you have an opportunity to glorify and enjoy God. That's a great privilege. And yet often we're like, what does that have to do with God? And you actually are squandering an opportunity for joy and treasure. Now, by the way, I think lotteries and gambling are sinfully oppressing the poor. So I'm not commending lottery. It was just an example. 
All right. So glorify God in all things is more specific than you think. It's not just glorify God in everything. So we need to understand Paul so that we can glorify God in all that we do. All right, so do everything for God's glory, eat and drink for God's glory. Thirdly, we're going to get more specific now. What does it mean to do everything for God's glory then besides eating and drinking to not um, to think about other people? Verses 32 and 33. Here's a third step in understanding what it means to glorify God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many so that they may be saved. Here's the third step in glorifying God in everything. Give no offense to others for God's glory. Or to use the NIV words, don't cause someone to stumble for God's glory. So do everything for God's glory, eat and drink for God's glory, but even more specifically, give no offense. Don't cause others to stumble for God's glory. Now look at verse 32. Who does Paul not want to offend? Look at your Bible. Who does Paul, there's three categories of people. Who who does Paul not want to offend? Say it out loud. The Jews, who else? The Greeks and the church of God. Okay, so you got Jewish religious people, Gentile, non-Jewish religious people, and then Christians, the church, right? And Paul says, who do I want to offend out of those three? None of them. I don't want to offend Jews. I don't want to offend Greeks. I don't want to offend Christians, the church of God. Who does Paul try to please in verse 33? I also try to please who? Everyone. So Paul tries to please everyone. Now, whose profit is Paul seeking? Look at verse three, 33, I'm sorry. Whose, um, whose benefit is Paul seeking? As I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but whose benefit? The benefit of who? Of the many, so that they may be saved. Oh, so Paul, get this, brothers and sisters, who doesn't, want to, who doesn't Paul want to offend? No one, right? He, he doesn't want to offend anyone. Who does he want to please? Everyone. Who does he want to benefit? The many. That doesn't sound consistent, right? Who does he want, who does he want to um, not offend? Everyone he wants to not offend. Who does he want to please? Everyone. Whose benefit is he seeking? Not everyone, but the many. That's weird. You're doing everything for everyone. You want to please everyone. You don't want to offend anyone. And yet you're not seeking the benefit of everyone? The benefit of the many? What is that? Why why does Paul do that? Well, here's the key question now. What is the purpose of these? What's the purpose of not? What's the purpose of not offending anyone? What's the purpose of pleasing everyone? What's the purpose of benefiting the many? Just from what we're learning, it's for the it's for what the glory of the glory of God, right? That's what we think. I I I want to please everyone. I want to not offend anyone. I want to do everything for the benefit of the many, for the glory of God, so that God may be glorified. You think that that's the purpose, and it is, but that's not the purpose Paul gives in verse 33. Look at verse 33 again. Why does Paul want to care about everyone, everyone, and the many? Why? Look at verse 33. So that what? They, who's the they? The many. So that the many may be what? Saved. Saved. Ah, here we are. Okay, what is the purpose of all that you do, whether you eat or drink or not offend the Jews or the Greeks or the church? And you do everything because you want to please the Jews and the Greeks and the church. Why do you do all your eating and drinking and everything you do for God's glory? So that the many may be what? Yeah, gospelized and then eventually saved. That's, That's it. You do everything for the salvation of the many. So to do everything for the glory of God is to do everything for the salvation of the many. Now, which groups does Paul want to be saved? What groups does he mention in verse 32? The Jews. Do the Jews need to be saved? Yes. Why? They reject Jesus as the Messiah. So do Jews need to be saved? Yes. The Greeks. Do the Greeks need to be saved? Yes, in 1 Corinthians, it's foolish, right? It's, the cross is weakness to the Jews, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. They believe in their philosophies. Do they need to be saved? Yes. 
So yes, of course Jews need to be saved. Of course Greeks need to be saved. But So he does everything for the Jews' salvation, for the Greeks' salvation, and for the third group is the what? The church's salvation? Paul does everything for the church's salvation. That's weird, we say, because we know Ephesians 2.8. What does Ephesians 2.8 say? For by grace you have been what? Saved through faith. Paul, the church is already saved. You don't need to save the church, Paul. You wrote in Ephesians. Let me remind you of your own writings, Paul. The church is already saved. What do you mean you do everything for the salvation of the, the church? Because they're already saved. Well, Paul would respond, I think. That's not, the only way, that's not the only use of saved, PJ. There's another way I talk about saved. Haven't you read my letter to the Romans? Because in Romans 5, verses 8, and 8 through 10, it says this. God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, but then keep on going. Much more than since we have been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. We have been justified and we will be saved from his wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled with God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled, past tense, having been reconciled, saved, will we be saved by his life? In Romans 5, Paul's talking not about initial salvation, conversion. He's talking about final salvation. It's not just about initial salvation. People who get saved and they walk down the aisle and they get baptized and they join a church and then they, they disappear and you don't know where they are anymore. And Paul's happy because the count is up. Our baptism count is up and our membership count is up. Is that what Paul cares about? How many initially profess that they're saved? No, he cares about how many are finally saved. He cares about the initial salvation, but then he cares about the process of salvation. Not that you're being saved in the sense that you're earning your salvation, but you're still being saved from your sin. And then he cares about finally being saved at the end. He cares about it all. Glorifi- or yeah, glorification, so justification, transformation, and glorification. He cares about all of it. So Paul is saying, if you're going to do everything for the glory of God, you need to do everything for the final salvation of the many. That's why he's not, even, he's not just trying to not offend Jews and Greeks. He's not trying to offend the church of God. Why is he going to defer to a weaker brother? Because he, the weaker brother is already initially saved. Why is he deferring to his weaker brother? Because he wants his weaker brother to be what? Finally saved, which means he needs to guard his weaker brother's conscience. Because if that weaker brother of mine is going to make it to the end, I need to protect his conscience. I need to not violate his conscience. And then I need to inform him from the word so that he can continue to form his conscience to be informed by the word, right? If, you're gonna, if he's going to make it to the end, if he's going to finally be saved. So, brothers, not eating and drinking to the glory or eating and drinking to the glory of God is eating and drinking for the final salvation of the many. Not eating and not drinking to not stumble or unnecessarily offend another person is so that you can gospelize and disciple them to the truth and to Christ so that the non-Christian may be initially and finally saved and so that the Christian who's already initially saved may continue in his faith so that he would be finally saved. Does that make sense? You understand what it means? So when we say whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God, we're not just saying drink orange juice to God's glory or eat a burger to God's glory. We're saying, do everything for the final salvation of the many. That's what the text means. So do you, re- do you realize, church family, Christian here, do you realize that you have other members of this church who have gathered here today to work for your final salvation? You should thank every other Christian you see here today who's a member of this church. Thank you for coming today because your presence and us meditating on God's word together is helping me Make it to the end and persevere for final salvation. Praise the Lord for a church family. Praise the Lord for the brothers and sisters who are here. Praise the Lord for the other brothers who have emailed and said, hey, I can't make it today, but we're praying for you. Praise God we have a church family that serves each other for our final salvation. What a gift from God. Do you feel God's love through the church? It's a gift. If you're not a Christian, God doesn't just want to save Christians. He wants to save non-Christians. God wants, God loves you and he wants to save you from your sins through Jesus Christ. All right, so we've talked about doing everything for God's glory. That was point number one. Step number two, eat and drink for God's glory. Step number three, don't offend for God's glory, which is the same thing as saying don't offend for the final salvation of the many. 
And fourthly, lastly, chapter 11, verse 1. Last verse, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I what? As I also imitate Christ. What did Paul do? Did, did, Did Paul give up eating for the sake of others? Yes. Did Paul give up financial freedom? Sometimes, and raising funds from churches for, for, for the sake of the gospel and not stumbling people? Yes. Did Paul give up comfort? Did Paul give up his freedom out and get locked up in jail for the sake of, for the salvation of the many? Yes. And so Paul's saying, brothers and sisters, I, have, I lay down my life regularly for the final salvation of the many. You do the same. You copy me. Lay down your rights. Lay down your privileges. Lay down your comforts. Lay down your conveniences. Lay down your preferences for the sake, for the final salvation of the many. Paul's saying, copy me. Imitate Paul for God's glory. That's point number four. Imitate Paul for God's glory. And Paul says, let's not, get, let's not stop with Paul. He's not our savior, right? Imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. Have we loved others well? Have we done a good job of sacrificing our own preferences for others? Have we done a good job of of laying down our lives to glorify God and do everything, whether we eat or drink, for the final salvation of the many? Have we done well? Have we done it? Have we done a good job? Probably not. But there's someone who has. There is someone who has perfectly laid down his rights. There's someone who has perfectly laid down his preferences. There's someone who has perfectly laid down his comforts and his convenience for the final salvation of the many. It says of him, he existed in the form of he existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Who has perfectly glorified God? Jesus. Who has perfectly lived and done everything for the final salvation of the many? Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of God the Father. Jesus has laid down his life for the glory of God the Father and the final salvation of the many. And we would not be saved without him. Praise God that we have a Savior who did that. If you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ came. He gave up his preferences, his comforts. He gave up his life. He was damned and condemned on the cross by God so that you would never be damned. He died to save you. He died so that you'd hear the gospel this morning. He died so that you'd have an interest. He died so that you would believe if you would believe. He died so that you would persevere to the end. Jesus died so that you'd repent. So the call, if you're not a Christian, today God is calling you, non-Christian friend, to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. And if you're a Christian, let us rest in this Messiah. But then, to go back to Paul's words, let us imitate this Messiah, right? That's the point, the point of this passage. Let's celebrate the cross, but then let's imitate the cross. Let's take up our crosses daily and lay down our preferences for the final salvation of the many. So do everything to the glory of God. Gospelize unbelievers for the glory of God. Consistently live for the glory of God. Gospelize Christians for the glory of God. As a church family, what does this mean for us? Let us cultivate a family here where we share life and we share sacrificially for each other. We get to know what each other's burdens are and preferences are and deficiencies in the word, and we apply the word gospelizing each other. This is the mission of the New Testament church, to glorify God in serving others for the final salvation of the many. So let us praise God for people to serve. Let's praise God that he's given us people to serve and that that God would use us as sinful as we are. And let's praise God that he's given us people to serve us. And to work on us for, the sal- final, for our final salvation. Let's recap. Do everything for God's glory and the final salvation of many. Eat and drink for God's glory and the final salvation of many. Don't offend anyone unnecessarily for the glory of God and the final salvation of the many. And then imitate Paul and Jesus for the glory of God and for the final salvation of the many. That's the main goal. 
glorify God in all things, and it's more specific than you think. It's not just glorifying God in personal communion with God. It's taking your personal communion with God and using it to spread his glory to others. The, let me use a car analogy that came to my mind this morning. The goal of a car is not to have a full tank of gas and keep up the maintenance. The goal of the car is transportation, right, to get you from point A to point B. Now, do you need gas to get there? Yes, but you don't just celebrate because you have gas in your car. Gas in the car does not equal mission accomplished. Gas in the car is used so that you can get there and accomplish the mission. So the same thing, you commune with God and you glorify God personally, but that's like getting gas in the car. You need that. Without gas, you're not going anywhere. Without you worshiping Jesus, you ain't going nowhere. You're not glorifying God with anyone. But that's not the goal. The goal is for you to worship God, and in your worship of God, that worship now overflows in you helping other people to worship who? God, the final salvation of the many. And in that, that is the mission of the church. That's your mission. Fill up on your Bible this week. Fill up on prayer. Fill up on the word. And then unleash that in loving other people. So here's my call to action. Reflect for five minutes on what you did at the end of the day on how you could have done that task more thoughtfully for the final salvation of the many. That's my call. Five minutes tonight, five minutes tomorrow night, five minutes on Tuesday night. Just say, what did I do today? And how could I have done that for the final salvation of the many? So I did that last night. Here's what I did. I was like, what did I do today that I didn't think about? I cleaned up weeds here at the sidewalk. I cleaned up weeds for work day yesterday. What could I have done for the final? How could I have thoughtfully done that for the final salvation of the many and the glory of God? Here's what I came up with. It's not genius. It's just normal stuff. I could have prayed for my neighbors who hang out on the, at that wall all the time and drink and smoke. They, they, they do that right there where the weeds are, right up there. I could have prayed for their salvation. Um, I could have asked God that this upkeep of this wall would be inviting our neighbors to consider attending our church. I could have prayed for the glory of God as I did the weeds. I didn't. I could have. I should have. My point here, brothers and sisters, is whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or pull out weeds, do everything for the glory of God and the final salvation of many. Reflect, think, and obey. If you do not reflect, you will mindlessly continue to do the things you have to do this week. If you do not reflect, you will not grow in glorifying God or saving some of the many. And if you do not reflect, you will live with doubt. Can I ever glorify God consistently in my life? But if you do reflect, brothers and sisters, you will mindfully do things. You will grow in glorifying God and saving some of the many. And you will live with confidence and joy drawing near to God as you lay down your life and your preferences for him and for others. You'll grow in your consistency and you won't be hopeless anymore. You'll have hopeful expectation of progress and effectiveness. So that friend who asked me, how do we know Jesus is risen today? Where is Jesus seen today? How can I see Jesus today in 2018? The answer is, Jesus is seen in his body of people glorifying him and laying down their lives in everything for the final salvation of the many. If you want to point people to Jesus, point them to the church as they lay down their lives and embody Jesus. Let's pray. Father, take this word now, we pray, and teach us to glorify you, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, and teach us to work for the final salvation of the many, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, even sharing here or singing our closing song. In Jesus' name, amen.